In the Name of Overhead Athletics podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Max Wardell, your host, and today we have a very special guest, Garrett Bullock, who's actually a former professional baseball player with the Houston Astros organization. He's a doctor of physical therapy, and he played baseball at Wake Forest, so we want to talk to him a little bit about that as well. And right now he's actually pursuing a doctorate degree, a PhD, in musculoskeletal sciences at the University of Oxford in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Garrett. Thank you for having me. Garrett, you have an interesting background as a professional baseball player. I know my mentor was a physical therapist and a professional baseball player, and that's a very rare thing. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into physical therapy and then even pursuing your doctorate degree a little bit uh, or uh, moving from your DPT onto your doctorate in uh, musculoskeletal sciences now? Yeah, absolutely. So. I went to college as a history degree uh, major and focused on Middle East and uh, philosophy. Um, and that's what I got my undergrad in. Um, when I was going into the professional ranks, I thought when I retire, I would become pitching coordinator for my league organization and or move into front office. Um, I thought that's where my calling was to go. Um, as I moved throughout my time as a collegiate and professional player, however, I've had too many injuries to count, honestly. I had over 20 MRIs. I had so many cortisone shots, I, I don't even know anymore. Um, ended up having five reconstructions, et cetera. <clears throat> the thing that really bothered me about that was not so much that I had these injuries. Um, it's more of like, we didn't know why I had these injuries or why other people that were statistically pitchers um, were having certain injuries. Um, you know, current evidence-based practice, injury prevention usage, doing all this time to our care, I was you know, always in great shape, always in, had great strength, always doing the arm care that was prescribed by the PT, the AT, the strength coach, limiting my pitch counts, ramping up and ramping down correctly, doing all my off-season work, still didn't really matter. <laughs> and so this, this really bothered me. Um, not understanding, I mean, so I'm one player, but as an organization and looking out through baseball as a whole, from Little League all the way up to professional ranks is, we still don't really understand why injuries happen or who these injuries happen to. I think the best example is actually Mark Pryor, who you probably remember. It's like when he came to the big leagues, everyone's like, he's like perfectly pitching mechanics wise. He's never, he's like the Titanic, which <laughs> the unthinkable ship, the, the un, unheardable pitcher. And he's out of base, pro baseball by the time he's late twenties. Um, and so this really drove, drove me towards physical therapy having an understanding of rehabilitation, injury prevention, understanding the body on a much more complex, intricate level. Um, however, while I was in pro ball, I was actually playing for the Lexington Legends in A-ball. We played with, um, well, that's where the shoulder, um, with one of the sh premier shoulder experts is Dr. Kibler, who you may have heard yep. of. He's the one that did all the original scapular kinematics, scapular understanding of six scapula, all that, in the 90s and early 2000s. And I was a part of some of his studies, all his studies that are in the 08 to like 15 range published the scapula and pro ball. I'm, I'm one of those participants. And seeing how he was looking at us as pitchers and then his findings, he would present them and his team every year, totally changed how we performed arm care, how we totally changed when we did bullpens. 
Um, prior to then, we did on um, classic, classic pro ball or sides on day two after our start. Because of him of looking, and I think some of this comes with Mike Reinald as well, of looking at how our posterior shoulder um, muscular trauma happens after we pitch from the eccentric loading is that, you know, we don't really gain full internal rotation until by, by day three. So we actually moved our bullpens and totally changed our arm care because of Kibler's work um, that I was directly a part of. And so this is where I kind of understood the first time of how important um, science and, and how impactful that can be in relation to having an understanding of medical and the baseball field. So that's really, that was when it kind of like an epiphany moment of understanding physical therapy into research following physical therapy. And I think on ResearchGate, tell me if this is incorrect, you're listed as having 73 publications? <laughs> um, all the ones that are out there at the moment, yes. Um, yeah. Those are pretty much where I'm at. <laughs> and I heard a statistic that says three to five, three to five, three to six uh, published peer-reviewed articles is the equivalent of the amount of research that the average PhD requires. Can you tell me if that's correct would, or not? I would say that's pretty close. I would say between three to five is about, is about right. Um, yeah, from what my colleagues and who's gone, depending on what type of, if you do a European or North American, I'd say in that three to five range is about right. Okay, so that's the equivalent of 73 divided by five. Whew. That's a lot. Of, so um, a lot of this research, obviously you've done research in other areas, but mostly pertaining to baseball um, studies. You've done some, some research in with collegiate athletes where you're looking at um, NSAIDs and, and you're looking at mechanics, and you've done basically this huge array um, across many different disciplines in reality uh, of research. If you were to look at some of that stuff, where do you think like research is heading in terms of what's the most important stuff for these epidemiological um, phenomenons and injury rates that we see in baseball? Like, where are we heading? I think, that, I think that's, that's a really great question. I would say that the number of hottest topic that I've come across within pro athletics, and this is from Olympics, NFL, NBA, MLB, and pro soccer, which I've had dealings with, is that it's really in prediction, which is what my PhD is in. My, mine's in statistical prediction um, and epidemiology, big data. I think that's where a lot of it is moving towards. I'm not saying that's all the answer, um, but I think that's where a lot of it's moving. I'd say the most important answer that no one has really moved very well into, and some of this is because of the nature of sport, um, is causality, which is the understanding of the cause and effect of different things. And this, so. Right now, within the literature, and this baseball is probably one of the best studied of any sport, honestly, is that you know we have these range of motion and strength factors that we know can relate to injury um, within arms, and then we have different biomechanical pieces, but we don't understand the actual cause, if these are actual causal factors or if these are more just associative um, at the moment. And, and the reason that is is that so like if we have a, you know, randomized control trials, which is where really most of your causality of understanding comes from is that, you know, if we have, say, like a hypertension drug, and we're trying to lower um, blood pressure, we can do a control group and a treatment group of a certain blood pressure pill, and we know, you know, it lowers it by 20% more from this pill or not. In, in sport, 
it's really, really hard to do that because say, say you're trying to work with Major League Baseball and you, and you got every team, all 30 teams to work with you. Are they really going to give half their pitchers an, an intervention, the other half not? They're trying to win the World Series. <laughs> um, and, then, and then the minor league players, which you can do a lot more with, they still, you know, I got a million dollars in this guy and I got five million in this guy and this guy's a free agent signed for a thousand, but still, you know, if he gets hurt, then my million dollar pitcher's got to work more. So it's really, really hard to do um, a randomized control trial. Um, and then ethically, um, I know a lot of the work in injury prevention is kind of, there's been some like Carolyn Emily's done some great work in randomized control trials of injury prevention is that we know that injury prevention works, um, you know, from the FIFA 11 plus to Carolyn's work and to some of the stuff at Japan for the arm care is that, but can we not, how, how we can't ethically not give one group an injury prevention, not give them an injury prevention as control. So that's where a lot of our, I think of our, a lot of our issues in causality come from at the moment. And it's like you said, and I'm glad you said it, it's so difficult to even look at the biomechanics of the throw and start to identify uh, correlative factors to injury or contributing factors to injury because one athlete, and, and people have tried to do it, like, oh, the, the inverted W, it's like, well, how he throws from that position is drastically different than how he throws, and then how do we categorize these 100 athletes who all get to this one position, but then 25 of them throw with their elbow continuing to go up, and the other five drop their elbow yep. into uh, yep. adduction, and then the other ones, you know, they, they supinate and they bring the ball out and around, so it's so difficult. There's so many confounding variables. Um, what what are we doing to start to, you know, uh, I guess solve this problem? Yeah, so that's a great question. Number one is that it's, and this is within all of science, we're starting to work much more in an open science framework and, and multi-center collaborative environments. And that, so like I, I was in a, a meeting probably a week, week and a half ago with a, with, with a, a team. They're like, we want to learn how to predict this in our, in our athletes. I said, that's great. That's probably the most pertinent thing you can do within your athletes in, in your sport, but we're going to need 3,000 people to do that. <laughs> and, you, and you got less than 100, right? So we're going to need either 20 years, which practice and sport is going to change drastically in that time, or we need to have the whole league or really multiple leagues throughout the world to do this. And I think that's where the, some of the work I've done recently is really trying to open up those um, open collaborative, open data, open source work to try to bring multiple different research centers together or multiple different teams to be able to have the power to look at, is the inverted W really, a, really an issue? Or is it just that those two people that were really famous that had an inverted W got injured? Um, and so there's so many different variances within everyone, how they throw, how they move, and be able to understand really the signal from the noise from that. <laughs> and that, that goes beyond um, this prediction model, but into also, you know, individual assessments for each guys can, can then start to give us a better prediction of their potential injury rates or injury risk in the future mm -hmm. um, in terms of, hey, physical examination combined with maybe a biomechanical examination, which is often the neglected part, is <laughs> people are hooked up to these 3D mo motion caption, capture machines. They're looking at EMG. They're doing all these different things, and they got all the sensors on them. They're doing everything, but then they never looked at anything in their physical examination. They didn't look at their hamstring flexibility. They didn't look at their internal rotation or they didn't look at their rotator cuff strength or anything else. Yeah, I totally agree. It's really the, it's the confluence of all the, you know, all, all the things you look at and exam as a coach or as, or as a clinician or even 
or as a scout, like, you know, you get like, you know, how, how they look physically, you know, are they in shape or are they not in shape? How do they, how they look from a range of motion strength? How are they move? And then you get into the sport specific task. And then what is their loading from the sport specific task? It's really not until you bring all those together that you really start to have an understanding of what the risk is and how we can mitigate the risk, um, which is, well, you need a lot more data for that. And so <laughs> I, a lot of the stuff that's out there in prediction from the private industry that I've consulted on is, is really small and, and very opaque in terms of a black box methodology from that. Um, and so a lot of the work I've done, for, actually my dissertation is working on understanding effect size, sample size, and then the, um, how much you can trust different predictions for, within arm injuries. So I think that's where we're moving. Which is very different than the... A lot more than we need. Yeah, and that's very different than the traditional, um, especially in baseball, um, which is ripe in tradition. But oh, yeah. <laughs> the traditional methodology or the traditional thinking process is scouts are predicting the injury. Like, oh, this guy, he's got, that, he's got a loose flowing arm action. He's going to be healthy a long time. It's like, what does that mean? You know, what's the, what's the objective data behind that? Or, or what, it, what does that even mean? How do we quantify mm -hmm. a loose flowing arm action? Yeah, and I think in, in baseball specifically, we've gotten a lot better in that in the last decade. And I think especially in the last three to five years, and I think in the next five years, it's going to give even more precision. But I think we're starting to move into the continuum of too much information. Um, and so we're having this, um, actually, I wrote a commentary with people from the NFL, the Olympics, um, and pro soccer from Europe about this, is that we're, 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 we've moved so much into the data realm that we, we ha now we have an overload of data. It's almost paralyzing. And be able to parse out what's important from that and what are the type of decisions and inferences we can make from that and what are the implications of those decisions there's i think is where we're kind of moving healthcare generally like uh when a, the director from oxford uh he just retired professor andy carr he thinks that the next 50 years is really going to be about consolidation of healthcare um you know the from you know from the polio vaccine in university of Pittsburgh in 52 to about 2000 was really about expanding mris different vaccines different types of surgery and improvement surgery I think we're really more of like, okay, now we've done all these things and we, you know, especially with Google and big data and Google health and all that, what is actually important from this? What are the factors that really mean something, not just from say in baseball preventing arm injury, but also what is it, what's important to the player? What's important to the coach? What's important to that? Instead of right now, I think we're in this kind of in-between zone of let's just test everything and then see what comes out. And then it's, it's just like you put your, if you, you know, um, pointillism, um, from, um, you know, you put your, close, your face so close to the pointillism um, types of paintings and you don't understand it's that until you move back and you say, okay, here's where this trend is, this is where this trend, this is what's important. Right, we're looking right at our nose, exactly. <laughs> and that's even evident if you look at statistics. I mean, look at how many statistical categories we have, and I don't even know what all of the abbreviations mean for pitching statistics anymore because <laughs> there's like 150. I know. <laughs> and I haven't been a player for about eight years now so like I've, I've kind of and i haven't been a coaching or anything for a while so i've kind of lost a little bit of that <laughs> i think they've blown up since then a lot more than when i played which wasn't oh, yeah. that long ago oh, yeah. i didn't play in like 1970 or anything so <laughs> yeah even i was five years ago and um like i was looking at whip era win loss opponent batting average strikeouts to walks all these different things and now there's like there's like six letter abbreviations and I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is beyond me. <laughs> this is me. 
<laughs> first pitch strike. And, and that's, that's the, that's the same thing we're seeing here, strike. too. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I see a lot in... Yep. Uh, I see a lot this in sports generally. It's like, oh, I have a new test. I have a new metric. Um, I added this piece. But does that really add anything? I think uh, a lot of the work that comes out of decision analyses kind of can help with that. It's not just important to have, oh, this is reliable and valid and then has good precision. It's like, how does that affect actually your decisions when you're looking at an athlete? Does that improve your decision or does not improve your decision? And what is the harms and benefits of those actions? Yeah, we, have, we, we don't know what all the data we, we don't know what it's telling us. And, and some people know exactly what certain things are telling them, and then they have 50 other tests. And that goes as far as our movement screen, which is actually how we got connected here, uh, Gray Cook. And I reached out um, to Matt Cook and asked, hey, you know, and he threw your name out there. Um, so I want to I thank Gray Cook and Matt Cook for the connection here. This is awesome. But when we talk about movement screens, we need to make sure that we're looking at the most important variables for each athlete. That goes for our entire physical examination, as opposed to looking at 50 different tests. And maybe that's what some, some people are promoting out there is we need to look at every single thing. Well, no, we need to look at the things that are most important and that are going to demonstrate um, statistical significance, but also clinical significance in the end for each individual athlete. Yeah, I totally agree. Gray and I always talked about uh, you need to get the low-hanging fruit out of the way before you can talk about anything else. And every time Gray and I talk, it's always like, you know, how's your sleep? How's your recovery? And then once, if you're not sleeping well and you're eating McDonald's every day, does it really matter what I do to you? With, uh, those are easy things that can <clears throat> immediately affect how you recover, how you move. We've seen so many, when I was a clinician full time in Southern Virginia with Gray, is that we bring in these athletes and they, you know, their squat would be a one, their leg raise would be a one, their asymmetry would be really poor on their balance. And they say, well, how do you eat? How do you sleep? And they say, well, okay, drink water, you know, <laughs> start with eight cups of water a day, with, add some vegetables and get eight hours of sleep, and they come back and they're already moving better. And, and you know, I, you know it, made, it made me look like I was really good when all I did was like, this is what your mom would have told you when you were 10, <laughs> you know, <laughs> eat your vegetables, get some sleep. Um, so I think, I think we need to start from, we, need, we, we sometimes forget about those important pieces that are just so easy to, or at least so, so simple to add. I wouldn't say they're easy. They're so simple to, to intervene on without, before we start th thinking about other more high level pieces. <laughs> Yeah, and you've brought up some important, um, important things here with individuals. And, and I just had a conversation with uh, Greg Lehman. I don't know yep. if you're familiar at all. Um, and we talked about, hey, are you healthy? And if you're not healthy and you're having pain and, and you're having these different symptoms, one of the first steps, just like you're saying here, is to start to get healthier. And it's not always, um, it's not always about hey, we need, to, um, we need to get this exact range of motion better and you're going to be out of pain. Sometimes it's, hey, if we maybe get a little bit better BMI, body fat percentage, we eat a little healthier, we go from five hours of sleep to seven and a half or eight hours of sleep, just like you're saying here, it can be drastic, especially with our athletes who you know as well as I do, they're not. Yeah, you're back. Yeah, I lost you for lose a half my second. audio there. Sorry. Yeah, um, I lost it for a half second. And so they're not always getting enough sleep as they uh, as they should be getting. I've seen studies that say 
the average collegiate athlete is getting five and a half to six point one hours of sleep a night and and I know guys who are getting way less than that so um, you know I, I, it's just it's interesting um, that in this um, era of data analysis and and um, all these different things we don't we don't focus on the simple things very much at all. And like you said, they're not, yeah, they're not I, always easy. I, they're not always easy, but they're very simple. Sometimes those are the hardest things, though. Um, yeah, from a collegiate athlete standpoint, I, I know you mentioned briefly the inset pain, health, really quality of life work is that I think a lot of, a lot of my, some of my work is, and this is definitely for me being a, a former athlete, is that trying to understand their overall health and well-being, which is not necessarily happiness, but like well-being is much more of a prolonged um, uh, positive state. And so this, this includes function, physical activity, and all that. And I think we're kind of, I think we're starting to hear some talk about that. But I remember when I was, when I was in Australia talking to Tim Gabbett, and he, and he always talked about, you know, workload, acute, acute chronic ratios, where he would always begin. But he's like, the biggest thing that we, we talk about is like, I, I asked an athlete, say, how are you doing? He's like, well, I'm one out of the 10. He's like, no, how are you? <laughs> he said, that was the most important part for me. And then we move into how workload affects you and then how the different movement movement strength and strength and injury history effects from the workload and I think we're some of that's really starting to come out and I know that um, in the tennis world that's coming out a little bit lately but I think we're only starting to scratch the surface of how much that can actually relate to say injury or time time lost from from sport or actually medical care usage in the training room how has your experience as an athlete influenced what you're doing as a researcher and then as a clinician really, as well. I'm guessing Wake Forest really, was an interesting experience being such a notoriously small Division I um, yeah, school. Yeah, so I'd say that, number one, from a research side, my, my view from, because of my athletic background makes me think of athlete-centered research. For me, everything's about the athlete. Athlete comes first. Um, which is different than when I talk to other groups. Um, they, you know, some view purely from clinical, some purely, purely scientific, or some from a front office standpoint. For me, it's always like, how is this affecting the athlete? What is the burden on the athlete? How, is this going to improve or hurt them? Um, does this add or subtract from their time? And then are they going to, are they going to believe it? Um, you know, there's so many things that, you know, you, you bring to the table with an athlete and then they're just like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it could be the best thing ever. Like a great example is that with strength, um, shoulder strength and with pitching in professional baseball, um, talking to Ann Cools at the university of Ghent that her, a lot of her works into strength endurance for the pitcher or for overhead athletes. And so that's probably a better marker than just maximal strength and say one, one time. Um, but as a pitcher in season, they're not going to do that. They're not, they're not, I'm not, they're like, I'm not going to tie out my arm at 2, 8, 2 p.m. when I have a 7.05 game. I'm not going to do that. I'll do it in the beginning of the season before it starts and at the end of the season. But I'm not doing that when I have to pitch tonight or get up or, or throw on bullpen. Mm -mm. But they will do one maximal, one maximal external rotation. So while the endurance one is a lot better, you're going to have to go with the, the, the maximal strength one. They don't think, see that as fatiguing. They're like, okay, I did that external one time. Um, from as from as a clinician, I would say that it makes me, it's, it really helps me understand, get inside a pace, uh, athlete's head. What, what, and also allowed me to be able to really relate to them, especially after injury of like, of talking about my own experiences of, of athletics, 
of, of my uh, depression issues with and feeling not being able to contribute following major injury and how that how that related to um, the the recovery curve from that and being able to acknowledge that I think it's been was really powerful as a clinician of saying I've been here this is what happened to me this is the issues I had this this is I felt this way this way this way I, these are the symptoms I have and this is how I kind of got out of it um, I'd say that those would be the two biggest. Yeah, I like that. You have you have a really unique background in a lot of ways, but also in that you're doing a lot of this quantitative analysis now, but you also have experience on the qualitative side in working with Gray. And that's where we largely are at the Overhead Athletic Institute. Obviously, we have quantitative assessments that we're, we're taking athletes through in looking at um, external rotation torque or, or these different things like you're talking about here. What, what is their strength in the internal rotation or external rotation? And we measure that. And, you know, what does the dynamometer say here? But we're doing a lot of qualitative biomechanics. And if you only have one of those two perspectives, you're probably missing out on a great deal of it, especially in my mind, especially if you're on that quantitative side and you don't dip into the qualitative side at all. Because Athletes are individuals, and if you're only on this side that only says what the research, okay, we look at front foot strike, and this is where you have to be, and you have to be at this point at maximal external rotation, well, you missed out on all of the other components that the research can analyze Yeah, I totally analyze agree. You really well. need both perspectives. So, like, when you look at the scientific thing, there's qualitative and quantitative research, right? And it wouldn't it wouldn't be out there if it wasn't extremely valuable. Um, it's, it's, I, it was... Um, Karen Deep Singh at the University of Michigan made a great point about two weeks ago, which I know I tweeted about, is that it's not about, it's not about what's happening in the greater literature. It's about that patient in front of you right there. It's that, and that patient in front of you doesn't care that, you know, the odds ratio of this is, you know, when I use this intervention or the risk ratio of this is that. They just care about, like, how can I get better? Or am I going to get hurt? Or am I going to pitch again? That's what they care about. Am I going to, if I have this elbow injury and I'm 15, am I going to, be able to play on my high school team? Or am I gonna have a chance to still play college? Or am I gonna be able to come back this season? That's what they care about. They don't care about the research. They care about being better. And that parent, same thing. They care about their son or daughter being able to be healthy so they don't have long-term issues and they can be happy and play this sport right now, which they love. And same thing if you're a collegiate professional. It's a little bit more intricate as you go up, but it's the same thing. And I think sometimes we lose that on the research side. And on the qualitative side, I think sometimes we, we have our own implicit biases from, from, you know, our own viewpoints. Like my bias is always towards the players. Sometimes that's, I mean, I would argue that's always a good point to stay on, but that there may be things that I think about that may be invalid because of that. Um, maybe I'm too much invested in the player versus, you know, looking at the overall body of, you know, the population. So I think it's really the combination of both where you really kind of get more of the best bang for your buck. <laughs> yeah. Combination of both. Yeah. So in your research now, you're looking at a lot of these um, injury prediction models, and you're analyzing a lot of former re research as well through literature views and meta-analysis and these things. And you're looking at, I'm interested to hear um, just some discussion back and forth on um, some of the NSAID um, and uh, anti-inflammatory uh, studies that you've done, especially because you've done so much um, 
research and investigation into the collegiate athlete, which is where I the think most, they're probably honestly. used. Yeah, uh, um, a little bit about excess. that study. That um, yeah, that's a yeah. study. I'm gonna give a shout out to Shafali Christopher, Ellen Shamley, um, University of Elon, Wake Forest, and uh, ATI Physical Therapy, University of South Carolina. Uh, that was a conglomeration of us because we all came from former athlete backgrounds and trying to understand athlete health, general athlete health to a much greater degree, which has really been overlooked. And what we found is that almost one in two, just it was around 40% used NSAIDs that had pain every year um, within the season. And not just, oh, I have my hand hurt today or my knee hurts today, like pretty proficient pain throughout the season. Um, and that out of those people that over 60 or 70% used some type of NSAID, you know, ibuprofen, Motrin, et cetera, throughout the year. The, the, the worst part, though, to me was is that most of those athletes never talked to any healthcare provider about their ibuprofen, Motrin, NSAID use. They just either bought it themselves or they got a family member or friend to buy it. And so there's some, and that their dosage was not informed on, not even on what it says on the bottle. It's like, and I, you play, play baseball, it's classic, oh, I got a pitch today, I got to say, I'm just going to take eight, eight ibuprofen and go with it. I remember, I mean, I, I used to be one of those people too, um, that, and that can cause some serious ramifications, not just from like internal GI stomach issues, but also from uh, musculoskeletal uh, tendon um, weaknesses, but also the classic of, I, I took eight, I eight ibuprofen, so now I can't feel my arm, but I already, I'm now going to throw into a tear because I can't, I'm quote unquote numbing my arm so I can pitch today. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the, the, the really scary issue to me was, is that we need to do a lot better job of monitoring that, especially at the collegiate level, um, and then also being able to educate them, and not just them, but their families, on what actually is good healthcare literacy and good healthcare use of, say, ibuprofen in terms of returning or trying to mask pain. I think, that's where a lot, I think that's where a lot of that showed. And I think that's where the qualitative work would really come in. It's like, what are the families thinking? What is the athlete thinking when they see, when they use and think about using NSAIDs? And then like on the quantitative side, it's like, what is the prevalence, which is the amount of people using it? And what are the barriers and facilitators to help change that? And I think that's where that can really mess together. It's funny that you Every mentioned Every done it at least once. Let's be real. <laughs> He, he's my buddy. Every game would have the elite liquid gel or the Aleve liquid gels. Just dump like a handful, eight, ten of them, and just throw them back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he had like the extra strength and whatever. And oh, yeah. I, I said, hey, I don't, I don't think that's how that works, man. He goes, have you seen my stats? Absolutely. Like, yeah, I got to keep my spot. working for me. I mean, half of it's just I got to keep <laughs> so, pitching because if I don't, then someone's gonna take my spot and then I'll never pitch again or that season. <laughs> and in professional sports I know it can go a bit farther at times because my mentor Ed Martell and he was with the Yankees organization he was kind of where his stats would go like this and you knew he was healthy and then they'd be down here and that was when he was injured and being the uh, minor league pitcher of the year for the Yankees and then having all these shoulder injuries he knew he could make and he did make the 40-man roster um, but he knew he would make the major league team if he was just healthy. And he said, ah, I want the purple ones today, the purple pills today. Those seem to work better than the green ones. And at the time, you know, it was one of those things where, hey, we got to make the athletes help, uh, happy and we're going to do whatever, you know, we'll give them whatever, um, you know, whatever they need to stay on the field. And obviously things have, have changed a little bit with um, 
this pre prescription of um, uh, pharmaceuticals, but muscle relaxants and, and this I goes beyond this NSAIDs. Shows that there's a lot more work that needs done on that, not just like, okay, that's one specific type of medication, right? That's not talking about the higher opioid use or, or the you know, muscle relaxers or whatever. I have to say that working in Europe, that they're a lot more stringent with that. Um, talking to some of the UK Olympic physicians is that like you have to, and this is what we had to do in our Miley system as well, is that you, if, if you had to take, say, even if you wanted two ibuprofen, which could be for a number of reasons, you had to sign it out. It was in the back and they would periodically check their bags or, you know, we always put keep in our baseball bag and just kind of throw it in the side. It's like, ah, oh, no one's going to see that. Um, they, they would periodically check and be like, oh, you got this. We got to work on that. Um, so I, I, I think there's some things we could do. Um, but I think it really has got to start with the patient and the families of kind of at least educating them because we're never, you're never going to catch everything, but at least maybe we can, you know, attenuate some of that. <laughs> and with these guys that are having pain all the time, obviously we're concerned with chronic injury and overload. What, I mean, where are we, where are we headed in terms of, um, with these guys, what's our first intervention beyond beyond the conversation of hey, what's I think what's actually it really going depends on, here? on what level they're at. What's our first you know, step? You know, a high school kid, especially if they're a JV kid, um, and, and they're having elbow pain, I'm just gonna I'm gonna shut them down. Like, there's a lot less ramification for resting a player that's 14 years old. If they're a professional player, I think it really depends on the context. Um, say we're in the major leagues and we're in September, we're on pennant chase, and this guys are. You know, eight, you know, 18 to $25 million a year pitcher. Depends on what it is, probably might, might still pitch them. <laughs> and it might, and it might be, we do a bunch of different things and know that right. And right. once he pitches that we put him on a complete, like his, his way, his training, his recovery goes, needs to be much more specific. Uh, we need to like, maybe even it's a check every day of like, we're measuring, you know, strength, range of motion movement. And they have these different priming factors that he has to pass before he can do certain things. Um, and then there's kind of everything, and I'd say the gray area would be in between that. Um, so I think that's, that's actually a pretty complicated question. Um, but I think it, I think number one's context, but I'd say I'm going to talk about youth athletes because that's where I think we have a lot more sway is that especially unless, unless you're a senior and you know, you're not going to play collegiately and you're in your last season, I'm probably going to shut you down at least for a little bit. If you're having more than say two or three out of 10 pain. Um, and that might only be for two or three days. And then we, and during that time, we really hammer manual therapy, trying to work on your, trying to work on different range of motion, strength, movement issues, and, and then try to ramp up precipitously in, in a safe manner. Um, but if it's much larger than that, it might depend on what the other further evaluation is. If you're in that one to two level pain, I think some of that might be pain education. I know it's really like, especially, you know, 12 to 14 year old kids, it's really tough for them to even understand what they're saying. Um, but I, but it would still further evaluation before and seeing how they throw and all that stuff. <laughs> Absolutely. And our youth athletes, they don't always have access to the athletic trainers, to the physical therapist that they probably should have access to. And I was just talking, interestingly enough, to uh, a pro player in independent ball, and they're they're monitoring. And you know exactly how cutthroat it is. They're monitoring how many times they see the trainer because they don't want to have to pay for 
X procedure or X medical procedure. So if, if I have this guy who's seen the trainer five times and he's performing just as well as the guy who saw the trainer uh, 25 times, well, I only have one roster spot here. And if you keep seeing the trainer, you're out of here eventually. And it's kind of sad, but because we want yeah, them to make I, use in, of in uh, the resources they the have here. The cost but. Is, is workers' comp um, by far. It's because their salaries are much lower than even minor league salaries, which is not fun. But um, but it is workers' comp. I know that for a fact. Um, and so it, independent ball is definitely a different animal than my, than minor league professional baseball. Uh, but you're right. It is there is some of that in in the professional ranks too. I mean, if there's certain injuries that you have, you're probably going to get released once you've re um, shown that you're healthy. Um, shoulder shoulder surgery is a big one. If you have a major shoulder injury, they're pro they're going to probably be a much more risk of cutting you unless you were massively first rounder, a massive first rounder or something, high prospect. Um, if you have Tommy John and you're a good prospect, they'll probably keep you because of how, how those return to sport better than shoulder surgery. So as, there is, and then if you were a, a one that was, I was a person that was in the training room every day, um, <laughs> shows how, how, how resilient I was as an athlete, but um, more risk to cut you just because of that, because there's they see that as more at risk for you not being able to participate. <laughs> let's, uh, let's change uh, direction a little bit here. I know you want to talk about some machine learning and relation to data science and different things yeah, so and injury risk. As I already talked about uh, my, my let's um, go into that a dissertation bit. focuses on prediction. Um, <clears throat> statistical and machine learning methods, deep learning as well. Um, that and I, it, one of the things that I've seen, and this is working with multiple different professional sport in, industries, is that there's really you know, machine learning super hot right now. I mean, this is within anything. You tell a lot of people call it artificial intelligence, which is uh, I would say less less correct term, um, depending on what you're talking about. But that AI, machine learning, deep learning are really hot across the board in anything in healthcare. What we're seeing though is is that Machine learning, deep learning is really good in certain contexts, doesn't really change anything in other contexts, and is statistics, classic statistics is better in other ones. It's so like a lot of the work we've done um, is that looking at biomechanics and machine learning, and actually machine learning does much better than regret, like classic statistical regression when it comes to predicting, you know, elbow valgus torque, shoulder extraction force, pitch velocity. Yeah, and it, it's because of the precision of the oh, that's awesome. analysis. 3D motion capture is the gold standard. The precision is, is very high, um, but it doesn't do so well in more range of motion, what you think human, human collected factors, range of motion, strength, stuff like that. And that's because of the, the measurement error with that. So there's a lot more noise in, the, um, in those type of factors compared to, say, a more of an instrumentation factor, such as biomechanics. Um, you know, classically, machine learning was first introduced for like facial recognition and like MRIs. And so, like, that's all machine, you know, it's instrumentation based. And that it does really like facial recognition MRI is phenomenal. Doing a convoluted neural network, nothing can beat it when it comes to like compared to like um, other types of uh, statistical methods. But when you get more, of the, the more the human gets involved, the less, the more noise there's involved just naturally because we're not all robots, um, and that we actually see a lot more noise. So it's really the context of what you're looking at and the data that the type of uh, data collection that's used, it depends on which one's going to be more valid. 
and well, I shouldn't say more value, better performance um, from machine learning, deep learning, or regression. <laughs> With the uh, machine learning here and AI, there's all these consumer products that are coming out um, on the market. And I'm concerned a little bit with, with many of them, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I'm concerned with them because they'll take one video from uh, a phone or a camera in one, in one angle, and then they're equating that to 3D motion capture and really, I think even a bigger problem is you have a you have a cell phone that's measuring that's that's doing a two D video, and then you're you're extrapolating range of motion in your assessment. So I've actually seen some that are they're doing overhead squat assessment, they're doing a you know the athletic stance IRER, and then they're telling you, okay, well there's actually a a twelve degree variation side Those to side. Those are good it's questions. Like, I, so okay, there is some actually really good technology see. out there from camera based to understand different movement patterns. Um, and then, however, I think it really depends. It's really how they're, how they're using the context of what the recommendations are. Like some of them, and I, I'm going to have to tell FMS for doing a really good job on this, is that it's really used to say, we're seeing something here from the self-use. Um, now go see a physical therapist <laughs> um, instead of, and I, I think that's phenomenal. That's great. I think that's great outreach. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, and I'm good at that. Have self-empowerment as a patient to see, you know, I'm going to move in certain ways. I'm going to do certain things. And then it's going to say, I think that there's some things we're seeing through this. Now let's send you to a physical therapist for more examination or athletic trainer or a physician, et cetera. Um, the ones where the context is really validated, a, a, lot of, a lot of times a lot of these apps are used for um, or validated on using a physician or physical therapist, athletic trainer that's used at the elite level. And I'm using it as part of my continuum of care and continuum of evaluation. But now we're touting it as now uh, mom and dad and, and, and athlete A from that's in, say a high school athlete or middle school athlete, you can use this yourself to do all the things that we validated on the, on the physician side or the medical side, physical therapist. And that's where I think the, the, um, a lot of the messages needs to be better tailored to what's actually the use of this and what have we used this on before. I think a lot more trans transparency, and I, my, my, my advisor, Gary Collins, has done a lot of this, is transparency on what is the proprietary software. And I'm not saying you have to give away your algorithm or your code, but there's a lot more transparency that needs to be done in terms of either external validation or messaging and spin or actual um, way. There's, there's mathematical ways to take, to take the code without seeing the code so you don't give away your IP to then um, use it in other ways to see how well it works. I think there needs to be a lot more work on the transparency of those things um, to see. I mean, because think about like a surgical a surgical intervention. Say like, you know, I'm going to have total shoulder replacement. The FDA has to go through so many different phases to be able to put that in your body. Or a drug, same thing. This is in many ways a medical device, but there's really no regulation. And I, there's so many, and I think if they had to go through at least maybe not, drug amount of FDA regulation, but some FDA regulation of some sort, we would have a much, it would be much more specific to what that actually is, and we'd have much more trust in that thing instead of the Wild West what it is right now, I would say. <laughs> right, and it should be a red flag. I mean, it's a red flag for me. 
if you have this proprietary formula that we don't know what it is and the nutritionists talk about it all the time when you have a proprietary blend in your milkshake and it's like okay well what what's that actually in there so we absolutely we absolutely need the transparency and I mean there's there there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting dynamics as it comes to like people are trying to protect their thing from being their their formula or their code from being stolen and and different things like that but it, but at the same time um it, it's way too ambiguous I, I would and, agree. and a lot of times I've, I've it's been on a uh, lot a lot of calls it's a little bit fishy companies I mean, trying to tout something or try to get us to validate something and it's pretty apparent pretty quickly do they include stakeholders so like parents coaches athletes strength coaches, et cetera, within their development. That's number one, that's very, that's apparent in three minutes. And then number two is like, how much, how transparent are they being or how much have they gone through the scientific rigor? Um, that usually comes out in about 30 minutes. <laughs> All right, so talking about analysis of, of throwers from the clinical side of things and what you've seen on the research side of things and starting to integrate those two um, obviously you, you were involved in some studies as an athlete and you've done some studies on scapular movement, strength around the shoulder, um, strength around the scapula and periscapular muscles and, and things like that. What are we looking at that probably we need to have a little different uh, perspective on or, or what are we missing a lot of times with these uh, throwing athletes, particularly the ones that are um, maybe injured or, or experiencing pain that are coming into the clinic? I, I, that's a really good question. I would say number one is that we assume all risk factors are the same throughout the entire population or populations. So um, when we, so like the classic is shoulder range of motion, internal rotation deficit, right? Um, and throwing is that we assume that the, the, what we see in a professional pitcher is say 10 degrees difference between both sides or five degrees difference is exactly what we should be looking for in a 12 year old. And we should not have to give a lot of props to Ellen Shanley and Carolyn Emerly for handling this into me, is that we cannot assume that a 12-year-old child is a little adult. Is that we have to take into context of where they are growing, where they are in terms of their, you know, you know a 12-year-old can be a very different biologic maturity. And you, have, you know, you look at a little league team, 12-year-olds, some will look like they're 10 and some will look like they're 15. Um, and then we take the things that we, most of the work's been done at the professional level or the collegiate level, and then we transpose onto a 12-year-old. That's number one. Um, number two is actually humeral torsion. Um, th this is a fact, th this is humeral torsion for you guys that don't know is actually the twisting of the shoulder bone. Um, and this happens as you throw throughout your growth and development stage. This has a profound effect on how much range of motion you have. That's why you can have so much more layback on your throwing arm compared to your non-throwing arm. Um, and, it, and it affects the range of motion of your shoulder when you look at it from a clinical standpoint and potentially also strength-wise. Uh, can't measure that with it, right? Some of the work I've done actually is trying to use classic tested measures to look at that, which is not quite out yet. Um, but uh, right now, the best way is direct ultrasound, indirect ultrasound. Um, not every clinic is going to be able to afford that, but if you have access to ultrasound, measuring humeral torsion and then looking at side-to-side -side difference is really important to understand where they're, how that's affecting their shoulder range of motion. So I'll mention this here. Um, 
softball players, adolescent uh, softball players. I've had a few referred to me in the last maybe six months that maybe had a 10, at the most 15 degree deficit in internal rotation. They were listed as uh, GERD and posterior capsule stretching. And then you do some joint play <laughs> assessment and you're like, well, this shoulder is completely unstable. And Gene's <laughs> no, 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 uh, absolutely no posterior capsule stretching. And really it's, it's, like, it's going to make them worse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And a lot of times like this about their inability to, to be able to control their shoulder and the high velocity movements is causing that. Yes. Um, like I would say neurological tension to help stabilize the shoulder. <laughs> yes. And good assessment would, would tell us that, hey, you know, maybe the internal rotation depth, it'll give us a realistic uh, picture of what GERD actually looks like or what their internal rotation and external rotation profile actually looks like. And a lot of people, like we talk about in our continuing education course, a lot of people are just letting the entire shoulder complex roll forward and then they're looking at internal rotation there and it's like, well, you just looked at the scapula anterior tilting, internal rotation, and the scapula elevated, and then at the same time, like you looked at internal rotation, and then maybe you dropped their elbow back, and so there's this this terrible uh, uh, evaluation procedure. But even beyond that, there's a, a I, I mean, it's completely overlooked in the fact that like it may not be capsular stiffness that's actually if someone that does truly have a deficit it may be soft tissue restriction and i've seen some studies recently that used ultrasound and they looked at um, penation angles and um, and alterations in muscle architecture and terry's minor and and, and things like that um, but in regards to that in the clinic should people be just hey if i get an athlete in I'm going to assume 10, 15 degrees. That's been our um, prescription. If, if they have, if they're within, if they're within 15 degrees of the other side, um, we'll probably call it good. For internal or total range of motion? For, for internal. If they're within 15 of the other side, what would you say? I and mean, we're always looking at total arc too, but. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's probably too wide. I would say more in the, between five and 10. Five and 10. Yeah. yeah, I'd say 15 is probably a little high. Um, if they're young, if they're 12 and they went through a grocer, that might be more close. But I'd say if they're six, 15, 16 plus, I would say more like between 5 and 10. Hmm. Yeah. I, I really like how you talked about how it's not just, you know, you got GERD, so we're going to give you stretching. Um, I, I, the hypermobile uh, females is the best classic example of that for a thrower. But you also see that, and don't be assumed that a 6'4", 240-pound male is not also hypermobile. Um, you just assume they're stiff, but I've seen, I've seen a couple of them, especially pitchers that can bring it pretty fast, that are actually on the verge of being hypermobile by the bait and scale. And when you look at their shoulder play, it's actually more than the rest of their body because some of that might be um, adapted over time and because of the predisposition to being hypermobile. But... <laughs> I, don't, I think just giving stretching to all internal rotation deficit that come in with the arm pain, is, you need to get a little bit better, a little bit more in depth in your physical examination first. I think that's a really good key point. <laughs> Will you talk a little bit about um, some scapular dyskinesis stuff and some of the research that you guys have done more recently? 
Yeah, so a paper that came out in OJCM not too long ago looked at scapular posture and then looking at pitching velocity in different biomechanical pitching pieces, and then also trunk rotation and hip rotation, um, trying to see kind of like how they all those associated with the different biomechanical factors. Uh, what we found is that there's really not much difference in if, in your scapular posture and pitching velocity, um, or nor was there a difference in scapular positioning in certain kinematic and kinetic factors. Um, we th now, I should stipulate that some of these were in younger populations, so, you know, if they're 13-year-olds, they might not have had enough time to adapt, um, and they might not be as good as a pitcher, like, in terms of repeating their delivery as, say, someone that's 18 years old and a senior in high school. Um, and so what we found is that, like, our overall conclusion was that is that there's really no competitive competitive advantage to having an overly adapted scapula for throwing. You always talk about like the six scapula and some of that is, you know, you're going to go through that throughout the season, especially when you get higher up levels of like, you know, that you're not going to be able to get that over upper rotation. You're going to be more anterior tilted just generally if you're closing that subhumeral, um, some um, subacromial space down. Um, so, but there's no, you know, there's always been this push pull of like, well, do you actually need the six scapula? Do you not need the six scapula to pitch? Um, and then we kind of, this I would say this is preliminary, but that you know at least within this cohort of like 150 people we ever had is that there really was no competitive advantage to having that more base. What you think about baseball scapular posture? <laughs> so I think this goes really back to you know having good tissue mobility, having good strength, having good having good being able to get in good positions with your sh shoulder periscapular movement is really important. And it's not just like oh I I can't do that because if I lose that I'll lose my pitching pitching ability. Right, and that goes back to the sentiment that you always hear, which is that you have these specific adaptations, which, you know, we, we know that that's what happens, but some of these specific adaptations are not going to lead to performance benefit in the end, and this seems to be one of them. And yep. I would yep. venture to say that another one would be alterations in spinal rotation or thoracic rotation. Yep. And I've, what yep. we've seen I've, just anecdotally, anecdotally is that athletes that swing right-handed, throw right-handed, tend to rotate a lot better to the left, and they're powerfully doing it a lot. Um, and that, that adaptation, it's great that they have great rotation to the left, but they also need uh, pretty good rotation to the right as well. Um, is that what you found? or? Yeah, so that was, that was why we looked at hip rotation and, and trunk rotation. <laughs> and see, like, do you need to lose that, you know, we see about 8 to 10 degrees difference on that on that um, contralateral side. Like, for me, for example, I, I've lost so much of my trunk uh, glove side rotation, it's not even funny. Uh, but which is what we found is that there was really no difference. And so if, you, if the people that lost it or didn't lose it, there's no difference in their pitching velocity or different or different kinematics within their, their throwing motion. And so there was really no competitive advantage of losing that, that trunk range of motion or that hip range of motion. And some of it's just, you know, it, it really comes down to trying to keep them more towards neutral on those specific factors. Um, you're never going to get, you know, their thrower and, you know, especially get to higher levels. They're never going to be symmetrical. You don't want them symmetrical, but you don't want them to be going so towards that adaptation that it causes injury. Trying to keep them as mo most equal as you can throughout the season, I think, is really important. <laughs> and that goes as far as a lot of our athletes. Just because they're symmetrical doesn't mean what they have is good. And that's for range of motion and strength. Just because 
they're symmetrical in their external rotation strength does not mean they're strong. <laughs> also true. They could be doing 15 pounds. They're symmetrical, but <laughs> they can't hold their shoulder when it gets into that um, release. <laughs> so we've, we're coming up here in an hour. Um, and the question that I usually leave all my guests with is what is one thing that you would want to leave the audience with? Um, and maybe in this case, specifically for clinicians who are working with um, throwing athletes from um, this perspective of either injury preve prevention or rehabilitation that you've seen in your investigation, your clinical experience, and your research. I would say number one is that don't always focus on, okay, number one is focus on modifiable and non-modifiable factors together, not just on the modifiable when you're assessing risk or return to play. Um, that would be my biggest one, is that a lot of times we think about, oh, I can change strength, I can change range of motion, so I should only think about those when I'm thinking about return to play or risk or, or prevention methods. But it's, it's really the context of the entire person, what's their injury history, what, um, you know, how they built those 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 play a lot of big factors um, that I don't think enough as clinicians we take into account when we're trying to make clinical decisions on return to play or or overall injury risk. Awesome. There's so many things we could talk about in this podcast, and maybe we'll be lucky enough to have you back at some point. But we want to thank you. This is Dr. Garrett Bullock here. Um, where can we find you, Dr. Bullock? Um, probably best is on Twitter, Dr. G.S. Bullock. I, I think that's my Twitter handle. Um, so Google Garrett Bullock Twitter, you'll find me. <laughs> and I suggest that everybody just go into Google Scholar or whatever your preferred search engine is and look him up because there is a plethora of studies, orthopedics, sports related, injury prevention, um, return to play, a ton of stuff. Yeah. Um, so definitely connect with him on Twitter. Check him out on ResearchGate or wherever you look for uh, your investigators. And we want to thank you again for coming yeah, on. Thank you. It was a great time. I felt like it was 15 minutes, not an hour. So I always talk about baseball all day. <laughs> all right. In the name of Overhead Athletics, I'm Max Wardell. We're signing off.